0: Last time, Uh, if you remember, last week I said we'll touch on the on the wrath of God next week. It's not a theme we really want to hit every single week. It's a difficult subject, the wrath of God, and uh, you know we we avoid this doctrine as if it were the plague. Nobody likes talking about it. I honestly don't take pleasure in talking about it but yet it is God's Word. And He wants us to know about it. He wants us to be able to warn others of the wrath that is to come. And we see that in John the Baptist's life. And the fact is, in a short time, even in the day of Zephaniah, he said, in a short time, uh, not long from now, God is going to pour out His righteous anger on sin by punishing the children of disobedience. And that should trouble us. That should trouble us. Colossians 3, verse 5 warns Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So those behaviors used to be our natural abode when we were unbelievers. That was natural to us because we weren't born of the Spirit. But now you also, Paul writes, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So we're to set those aside. As we learned last week, the wrath, anger, the abusive speech, that's not our ministry. That that what we saw was a specific situation With uh, John the Baptist, certainly there are times for righteous anger. We know that. But wrath is not our ministry. Why is that? Well, it's it's quite simple. The anger of man doth not achieve the righteousness of God, right? Due to our sin, our, our pride, our lack of omniscience, not knowing all circumstances and all things or all motives, It's extremely difficult for us to maintain that balance that we see in Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry, yet do not sin. It is possible to be angry and not sin. But Ephesians 4, it doesn't offer the the Christian a prescription or a license to anger. Because that same passage continues. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Same passage. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another... Tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So I struggle with this, likely as you all do. Anger, and we always refer to it as a righteous indignation, when we're the ones that are angry, right? And there are times when it's very difficult for me, I'll admit, to hold my tongue and not lash out, trying to vindicate myself. But you and I cannot achieve the righteousness of God through anger and wrath, because we don't know all the circumstances. As I said, we don't know every motive behind people's heart. And when we try to dole out God's wrath, we usually really mess it up. In contrast, God knows all circumstances, all motives, and when He pours out His wrath, it's holy, it's just, it's deserved. God's wrath is always righteous. It is a righteous wrath. John the Baptist had a, a ministry of preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins as we've studied the last couple of weeks. The gospel. His ministry was one of reconciliation to God. Consequently, he understood, that, you know, warning people of fleeing the wrath that is to come. That's a proper motivation, as I said during the scripture reading. There is a day of reckoning coming. There's only one way to be prepared to stand before God in that day, and that is through the good news of Jesus Christ. We will come back to that. but Let's start by reading our passage, Luke 3, verses 15-20. through 20. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ... John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by John because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, meaning added it to all of his wicked things. What did he do? He locked up John in prison. And when we left last week, we had heard John rebuke what we learned were the Pharisees in verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I told you then, I'm like, well, we're not going to cover that this week. That will roll into next week. So here we are today. Who did warn the Pharisees to flee from the wrath to come? We learned nobody. They weren't fleeing the wrath to come. The religious leaders, they didn't believe in John's baptism. They didn't believe he was a genuine prophet. Nevertheless, John made clear to everyone who heard him, God's wrath is coming, folks. He made that very, very clear. His assertion to flee that wrath demonstrates it's coming very quickly. There's no time to delay. There's there's a a very real sense of urgency in all of the Old Testament prophets, and then this New Testament prophet that we read here, John the Baptist. John uh, warns in verse 9, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, there's a good bit of debate in this passage as to the reference to these trees, what it's signifying. You know, some think that it points to God's righteous judgment on Israel, the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, uh, after Christ's... Crucifixion that we know is ultimately experienced in 70 AD when Jerusalem, Jerusalem is ex, uh, destroyed, excuse me. A- and their impression is the axe is ready to fall on Jerusalem. That is true. Numerous times Jesus refers to Israel as a singular fig tree. In Luke 13:7, in the parable of the fig tree, when it doesn't bear fruit. Referring to Israel, Jesus says, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. What does it even, why does it even use up the ground, Jesus said. So Israel had not borne fruit as a nation. Yet we also know there is always a remnant within, people within Israel, who do bear fruit, right? There's always a remnant. Personally, I think John here in our passage is more focused upon personal responsibility. And I believe that because he speaks of trees. It's of a plural. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And then he also says singularly, so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So every tree must bear its own fruit, Right? Jesus used the same illustration in Matthew 7, verse 1, saying, You will know them by their fruit. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, Jesus also says, just like John the Baptist, is cut down and thrown in the fire. Now living in an agrarian society, a lot of people there were farmers and, and keepers of groves. For those people, it would have been very familiar. The image of what John the Baptist and Jesus were talking about. Trees that didn't bear fruit, ones that were not fruitful, any, any branch of the vine that did not have grapes, did not produce grapes, that, that's useless. That is useless to the landowner. They were cut off, they were burned up. So the people were asking John then, well, well, what do we do? Last week we answered that question very clear. You bear fruits keeping with repentance. You bear good fruit. Bearing the good fruit, remember, that wasn't what saved a person. The bearing of the good fruit sh- uh, demonstrated or revealed what type that person was. Good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. So you're not saved by bearing fruit. It's an indicator of what kind of tree you are. Farmers didn't cut down good trees and and throw them into the fire. They needed the good trees. It indicates your kind. Fire here, when we look at fire in the Bible, it's theologically indicative of two things, typically. Purification of the believer. You're purified with fire. You're refined with fire. The other thing is God's judgment on the unbeliever. So you can either be purified in fire, refined, or you can be judged by fire. I don't think it's news to anyone here. I think all of us have read our Bible enough. Um, The wrath of God's judgment against sin is pictured throughout the Bible as an all-consuming fire. In Jeremiah 4 4, God says to the people of Israel, uh, the unrepentant, the uncircumcised of heart, My wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Evil's punished with fire. By committing sins, a person earns God's wrath. It's earned. It's deserved. It's fully deserved. Isaiah 59, verse 18. According to their deeds, so God will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. God will repay. Because God is righteous and just. And he will pay the wrath that is deserved. Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, right? What you earn, the wages of sin, is death. God dispenses His wrath as your payment for what you've earned. It is a wage. It is a recompense. As you and I offend a holy, a just, a pure, righteous God through our sins, what we have earned, our wages, our our appropriate wages, is wrath. Wrath. Fully deserved. Revelation uh, 21 verse 8 is talking about separation from God in a fiery hell. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars could throw us all into that group. Their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone Which is the second death. I'm going to demonstrate in a moment that that death doesn't mean finality. But the eternal lake of fire is the destiny of all unbelievers, folks, because they have earned it through living a life full of evil deeds. It's their recompense. Hell is not a fictitious place, it is a place where God righteously pours out what we have earned. All of us have offended God through our wickedness. Everyone has done that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This isn't a pleasant thing for us to consider. We don't enjoy talking about this. It's not laughable. We should consider that when we remember, or, or remember it when we think under our breath, I wish that person would go to this place. We don't like the idea of hell. We don't like to think that we would deserve such a thing for our sins. We prefer to hold on to a lie that God just loves us all just because we're all basically good people. Folks, that is not accurate. You will not find that in the Bible. Take a look on television. Really, just for a moment. Any programming, music, anything that's sexually suggestive, immoral, cursive, the name of Jesus used repeatedly in vain, the types of behaviors that are on our evening television, whatever you look at nowadays, you almost can't turn the TV on. We typically don't. Why is that on TV? It's because it's what people want. They revel in it. Unregenerate, unsaved people love that stuff. They eat it up. That's what people really are. There are none good. There are no good people, uh, Romans 3, verse 10. There's none righteous. There's not even one, Scripture says. We're all children of sin. And here's the, de- here's the danger involved with this. You know, entire denominations, large groups of, of, of Christian or quote-unquote Christians have dismissed any notion of God's wrath. They, they've just cast it out uh, along with the baby in the bathwater And they've jettisoned any idea of this doctrine of hell entirely. A lot of places you won't even hear about hell, though scripture is very clear about judgment and wrath and hell. And some even now insist that God can't send anyone to hell. Have you heard that? A loving God can't send anyone to hell. Really? Well, they might say, maybe Hitler, you know. But beyond that, God can't send anyone to hell. So the sinful creatures now have become the judge of the Creator. They've determined what God can and can't do. He's no longer permitted to be judged sitting on his throne in heaven. We instead have become the judges, right? We determine what he can do and what he can't do. Folks, that's a lie. That's laughable. Churches arrive at this error uh, in a few different ways. One one very commonly is just the the elevating of God's love, which we want to lift up God's love, right? But it is elevating God's love through the dismissal of all of his other attributes. They dismiss everything out about God, and they make them entirely about love. And then they don't come to a correct, correct conclusion of what love is or how it's expressed. And they exclude such things as holiness, of righteousness, uh, of justice, which also equally describe God in heaven. He is all of these things. He's just, He's holy, He's righteous, He's loving, He's forgiving. And they're all in balance. And if we don't keep them in balance, it always leads to licentiousness. You can just do what you want to do. God loves you just how you are and you can just go about enjoying your life in any kind of sin you want. Um, You can't get that from Scripture. You can't get there. Um, A God that doesn't judge sinners, one who will not hold sin accountable, a God that will not punish sin with His wrath, it is is concocted in the imagination. It's a false... God, which people have made up, and yet they, they'll assemble Sunday after Sunday or Saturday after Saturday, whatever it is, this God that they made up, and they'll bow down and worship it. A God that they believe will never judge sin. It is an idol, it is a false God. Uh, in Scripture, God is to be admired, God is to be worshiped, He is to be feared, He's to, to be glorified because He keeps all of these attributes in perfect balance. Including his vengeance, they're all in balance in God, and He represents Himself, not us, Lord. We don't we don't make this up about Lord, the Lord. Um, he represents Himself as wrathful and vengeful. Nahum chapter one verse two, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And then there's more. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Virtually every false theology today that that exists minimizes or extinguishes the wrath of God the consuming fire of God. We have doctrines that we hear about uh, of annihilation. Doctrine of annihilation. That suggests that anyone who doesn't get to heaven in one way or another, they just don't make it, either they're very evil, or they didn't look in the right place or look under the right couch or whatever. I don't know how they come to this. But people who don't get to heaven simply cease to exist. There's no hell, there's no wrath. Yeah, they don't get to heaven, but, but they just cease to exist, all in all. That's a doctrine of annihilation. That's quickly embraced. All kinds of, of uh, groups out there that embrace that. Uh, some insist hell doesn't exist at, at all. Or they teach universalism, which is that everyone in the end will eventually be in heaven. So nobody will go to hell. That's universalism. They dismiss God and his justice altogether. They dismiss it completely, entirely, his wrath and justice. I've even heard a false assertion recently that God isn't really wrathful at all. He isn't vengeful. He doesn't punish with a consuming fire. You know, God should just be understood, it is supposed, that you know he just steps aside and kind of lets stuff happen to you that's bad. You know, his protection is pulled from about you. That's his wrath. No, those are all lies. Those are all lies. Biblically, it is precisely that fear, that, that, uh, that fear we have of facing God's wrath that motivates us to flee to His loving mercy. And He is loving. And, and, and according to, to Jesus... That hell that we're fearing it's a permanent place of torment. In Mark chapter 9, verse 47, Jesus says, "If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched." In Matthew 5:22, Jesus refers to it as a fiery hell. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us uh, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that. Um, The rich man dies. He goes to Hades. This is Old Testament time. And and Lazarus uh, goes to Abram's bosom. Correct? And and Hades is is currently still, today even, the, the intermediate holding place of all unbelievers until the great white throne judgment. Hades still exists today. For the believer after, the, after Christ at the cross, uh, for us to die is to be present with the Lord. But those who are waiting the final judgment, the second death, that would be, they're waiting in Hades. And this is what it looks like. This, this is what's experienced in Hades. Luke 6, verse 23. Now the poor man, who is Lazarus, he died, notice died, was carried away with the angels to Abram's bosom, And the rich man also died, right? He died and was buried. So physically here he died and buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes. Did he cease to exist? No. In Hades the the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. This is Jesus now speaking. As if all scripture isn't breathed by God. It is. This is consistent Old Testament, New Testament. This was after the first death. Alright? The first physical death. Jesus represents Hades as a place of torment, of agony, of fire. Jesus never soft pedals hell, never tells anyone not to worry about it. Oh, a loving God would never send anyone there. That is not at all what Jesus or the apostles said. Why would we give people that impression? Why would the church imply to people, you're all right? Everything's just going to be all right. It won't be all right apart from Christ. Death doesn't indicate loss of consciousness. Death is separation from God. That's what it is. Um, the second death, experienced in hell, that's the place of eternal separation from God in Revelation 20, where the lost are sentenced to endure torment precisely according to their unrighteous deeds. Precisely according to their deeds. This is a, is a great uh, or a significant... Uh, opposition that people give why would everyone go not everyone's equally bad right well this this will address that we're told in revelation chapter 20 that the deeds of unrighteousness are recorded in books meaning they're written down not in the book of the bible in books there are scrolls containing every deed there will be given no credit for good works Good deeds will not be weighed on a balance scale against our bad deeds. And then, at some tipping point there, we'll, we'll see about what your punishment is. That isn't how it works. Your, your good works in your flesh, according to the Apostle Paul, those things that you think you do in your flesh, they're but filthy rags before a holy God, right? Paul puts down his whole list of everything good he had done, and they're but filthy rags. Worthless to a holy God. Um, They're filthy rags because when we weigh on our good works, they diminish the need for Christ. We are relying on something other than the cross for forgiveness, for reconciliation. Unsaved people, often when you'll talk to them, they will consider their good deeds as the reason that God will let them into heaven. You ever talk to them and heard that? Talk to people? Say, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? They say, well, you know, I've been a good mother and, you know, I I, I put my kids through school and I change their diaper regularly and all the stuff, you know, and and I gave a $5 bill to a person that was homeless on a street corner at one time. And they'll start listing off their deeds. Thinking that somehow because of those deeds, now they're righteous before God. Rather than righteousness through Christ. So they're diminishing Jesus Christ by pulling out their resume. That makes them evil. Those deeds wicked when they're used as as an excuse for not needing Christ. That's what Paul said. He used to trust in his deeds before knowing Christ. He said, now I know they're just filthy rags. Um... Scripture says there is no one who does good, there's not even one. Romans chapter 3 also says that the every intent of the thought of man uh, in the heart of man is continually evil all the time. That's what we are. We are sinners condemned unclean. That does not mean that all men, all deeds, are equally evil. It doesn't mean they're equally evil in the sight of God the damned will suffer accordingly to what they have done. Specifically to what they have done. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. Nevertheless, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained till this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. See the difference in judgment? Not all sins are equal. Some in Leviticus you'll see uh, all the offender needs to do is, is recompense or restore the person who's offended. Other sins require death. That's a picture of God's judgment. And the law foreshadowed God as a righteous judge who perfectly judges each according to their deeds, to their evil deeds. God didn't rain down fire and brimstone on cities simply because they weren't paying their parking tickets. You know, and they're disobedient to government. That wasn't the reason. Some deeds uh, draw God's righteous wrath. uh, Immediately even. Because they're exceedingly immoral in His eyes. Nonetheless, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these were cities that witnessed Christ. They were eyewitnesses to his, His miracles. They had the Savior right there in front of them. Still they rejected Him. That is is the great sin that will suffer even more than Sodom. Rejecting Christ is the greatest sin. What about those who never hear then? We hear about that. What about sinners in remote regions of the world? Great question. They too will receive a perfectly just punishment for their sins. It will be in different proportion. Luke 12, verse 47. In the story of the faithful steward, we also find the unfaithful steward or the unfaithful servant. Jesus says, And that slave who knew his master's will, these are the ones who know, and did not get ready to act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. It's talking about final judgment. But the one who did not know it, meaning not know the father's will, and committed deeds worthy of a flogging He will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So our response to that is, obviously we send out missionaries to places and we warn them to heed the wrath that is to come. But God is going to be righteous. God cannot be unrighteous. Sin will be punished. We're not to worry about it. There will be a reckoning. God has it handled. We're to go warn people to flee the wrath to come. The fact that there are varying degrees of punishment in hell, just as there also will be varying degrees of reward in heaven. Everybody's familiar with that, right? There will be same heaven. There will be varying degrees of reward in heaven for obedience. Same hell. There's not multiple hells. There will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. God punishes and rewards appropriately. But hell is still hell, folks. And for everyone there, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All sin will be punished. Folks, we must flee the wrath that is to come. The axe is already laid at at the root of the trees. The urgency of John, it's no exaggeration, And those people who were listening to John preach this out of the Jordan 2,000 years ago, they didn't have 2,000 years to, to put it off. Some of them probably didn't even live long enough to see Christ crucified or see Him resurrected. Today is the day of salvation. It is allotted for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. There's no second chance. You get to die once. That could be tomorrow for any of us. Surely at least some of them uh, that believe John were baptized by John didn't live long enough to even see Christ's resurrection. We're not promised tomorrow. We need to flee as fast as we can. Luke 3.17 tells us, this is referring to Christ. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. As we thoroughly discussed last week, the chaff refers to the weeds, the straw, the waste that the farmer doesn't want, while the wheat refers to God's righteous harvest of souls. That is the wheat that he will gather into his barn. The picture, of course, is of a threshing floor. If you've seen pictures of that, it's a, it's a flat, hard surface, a lot of times paved with rocks, on the top of a hill where the wind uh, is available. It's a hard piece of ground on a hilltop where the straw with the weed in it would be carried up. It would be put on the threshing floor and then usually they had an animal pulling a heavy sled that they would pull it around on the wheat, and it would break apart the kernels from uh, the uh, straw. So you've got the chaff that's left over. The dry wheat kernels, they'd be separated. Uh, the farmer would take a fork, what we consider like a foot uh, pitchfork, only wood. And on a windy day, breezy day, he'll throw up this mixture into the fire, or into the air, excuse me. And, and some of it will be carried to the side by the wind. The heavier kernels will fall back down to the paved area. That's the picture of the threshing floor. Um, the chaff consisted of waste straw, Dried up tears; it would be burned. Again, the picture of this society has seen this over and over again. Has anyone see, ever seen a dry wheat field catch fire? Art, you ever see that? In farming? I got to see it once. I was driving combine on my dad's farm. And they got small little rear view mirrors. Little ones on the combines, it's funny. But it, today, we don't carry all of the grain to the threshing floor We carry the combine to the grain, right? And it does the same thing mechanically as the combine uh, goes down the field. So I was driving the combine, it was picking up the grain in there, throwing the the harvest in the tank, and throwing all the uh, straw and chaff out the back. So you got this big row of chaff out the rear, and a bearing went out in my combine. It spun and got really, really red hot, came to pieces, dropped on the dry ground. All I saw in the rear view mirror was smoke before I knew anything had happened. And I tell you what, that chaff and that wheat went up. I've never seen anything burn so hot and so quickly as chaff. And I think of that with, with, with hell and with fire. By God's grace, I was near one, one side of the field, probably less than 50 meters from another field that was in green soybeans. Right? They, they mature later. And as the wind carried it towards that field, it died out as it hit the, grain, uh, the green soybeans. So, folks, this chaff, as it's burned, as it was burned in Israel, people saw it as an all consuming fire. It's a picture of God's fury against sin. Deuteronomy 9, verse 1 Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? So these are the people that were in the land that the Israelites are supposed to go dispossess and push out of the land. Continues, Now therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly. Just as the Lord has spoken to you, this is very important, just as the Lord has spoken to you, do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you that because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Again, God restates the same thing for emphasis. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. We must always remember as God's people who stand here forgiven in Christ today um, that we're not righteous, we're not upright in ourselves, we are mere recipients of God's undeserved grace. As Christians, similar to Israel, similar to them in that day, we are going to inherit a kingdom we don't deserve. It is the kingdom of heaven. It is given to us by His grace. We inherit the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews 12.28 Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. It's New Testament, folks. God's wrath is His to dispense. He will dispense it. It's not ours to dispense. Romans 12.17 says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so you will be heaping burning coals on his head. as a sermon in itself. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we do. The wrath is not ours to dispense. While witnessing uh, to others, it's appropriate to warn them of God's wrath, folks. It's a proper motivator. We behave well. We do things that are good. As we discussed at the outset, Ephesians 4, be angry. But do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? For those of us, many of us, we're so easily stirred to anger. We think we need to fix things immediately. It might be helpful for us to understand Paul's quoting here, a fascinating Old Testament Psalm of David, which I think interprets itself. Psalm 4, verse 4. Tremble, it means be angry in Hebrew, tremble and do not sin, Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Remember what he says next? Selah. Do you remember what selah means? We're not perfectly sure. We're not, it's, it's somewhat mysterious as a word, but Hebrew scholars believe it probably means a pause or a break, possibly even for a musical interlude to come in. So David says, Tremble, do not sin, Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Take a break. If you're angry, take a break. Then what? King David says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and their new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. Remember he says, don't let wrath go down on your anger? He's quoting King David in that point, And King David says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We can rest easy. God's got it all under control. He knows what is fair, what is just, and He promises He can handle it. We don't have to be irritated. We don't have to be seeking out vengeance through anger or God's wrath. The wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience in due time. We are to flee that wrath, as John the baptizer did warn others to flee that wrath. So how do we do that? Folks, as we close here, there's only one way, one way to flee that wrath of God. The one way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one that these people were anxiously waiting for. They thought, maybe John the Baptist, maybe that's the Christ. John the Baptist said what? No. No, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. We're going to talk about that next week along with Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit and Christ's baptism that was done by John. I don't have time to treat those appropriately today, but John wasn't the Christ. He admitted that. But all sin will be punished as a consequence of God's anger toward sin. God's righteous wrath will be satisfied. Many translations of the Bible use the term propitiation. You might have seen that. Propitiation means that God's justice has been satisfied. His holiness has been preserved. He has been a righteous judge Uh, So he's satisfied. A holy and righteous judge must punish disobedience. Even in courtrooms today, folks, if we see a judge or we hear of a judge who didn't punish an evildoer and let him off, it stirs us to anger, doesn't it? How could he let that person off? You can't be a just judge and let people off. Sin must be punished somewhere because God is righteous and holy. He's not corrupt. And to represent God biblically, we must keep his divine attributes all in balance. So please pay close attention here. Because God is honest, Titus 1 2 says, He cannot lie. Because God is pure and holy, we see in Isaiah 6, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Because he is holy, God cannot sin. Because He is a just judge, God can't simply overlook sin. It must be punished. But because He is loving, John 3.16 says that He sent His sinless Son to die and and to pay the penalty of that sin for all who would believe. Jesus is that propitiation, that satisfaction, that balance. Sin will be judged either for you individually, Sin will be judged either at the cross or you will pay the penalty yourself in hell. Those are the only two places that sin is represented as being um, taken care of. Folks, we may think back of our history years ago, high school, prom night, things we did in college. We think, oh, that was a long time ago. Folks, time does not erase sin. We may forget about it, but we're as guilty of that sin today if Christ has not washed us in his blood as we were the day we committed it. Time doesn't take away sin. It is either at the cross, and we believe in Christ suffering justly for our punishment, a substitution, or we will suffer ourselves in hell. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Don't believe in Jesus, you're judged. God did not send His Son to die on a cross and suffer that that agony and punishment for people to go a different way. It is only through through the cross. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So if you have not accepted Christ, received Christ as your Savior, that He understood that He suffered God's fury, God's wrath, For your sin, that that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. Like John the Baptizer, all of us here as a church, we implore you, implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. He who does not believe that Christ endured God's righteous wrath and anger on the cross, then for that person, God's wrath has not yet been satisfied. And it will be satisfied by you. You don't want to be there. there. There'd been no propitiation if you don't believe Christ died on the cross for your sins. But to all who believe Jesus endured God's wrath on the cross, uh, we know He drank the full cup for us. Today is a salvation, folks. Don't let it pass. Don't let it pass. Uh, for who knows what tomorrow will hold? There's no way to know. First Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example of for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds... You are healed, for you are continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Folks, there's only two places you can suffer for sin. I'm going to close with this. I get asked this question uh, time and again um, Did Jesus bear the full, wheat, uh, full weight of our sin? He did every last sin. This exposes a problem, folks, with the doctrine of purgatory. And because it is asserted that we might potentially pay for some of our sin before going on to heaven, this needs to be addressed. If any person believes they will pay for any portion of their sins in a place called purgatory, if they believe that, they're going to pay for their own sins in purgatory. By default, they confess with their own lips they do not believe that Jesus paid the debt on the cross. It's that simple. It's either one or the other. The wrath of God has to be satisfied. It'll be satisfied either through faith in Christ or you will bear the wrath of God yourself. Instead, we're to flee into the loving arms of Christ. Let's pray.